yes, if you are listening right now on AdrenalineRadio.com or AdviceRadio.com, you are listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, film critic and creator and host of Behind the Lens. And while you can find my reviews and interviews in various places in print and online around the world every day, you can find me here every single Monday uh, at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time with Behind the Lens. And I see my trusty, my trusty sidekick, my sound engineer, Brian, playing and typing in the booth, and God only knows what he's doing. What are you doing? Posting on our Facebook page as well as our Twitter page that the show is now live and people can tune in. Obviously, they know since. But in case in case they're not listening and they're on and they're on social media. Yeah, no, that's why the importance of social media has really dawned on me the last couple of months. Having started my own podcast, if you're not active, then they're not there. Yeah, but we appreciate everybody listening to the program that tunes in weekly and then downloads the podcast. Also, that's a step more than you should be taken when, when listening live and we appreciate that for sure but of course you know in addition to archiving in the podcast after the live radio broadcast being available on the adrenaline radio.com website you this afternoon you will find it on movie shark and tomorrow you will find it on itunes elias entertainment um so please feel free Check it out. And then we also do a two-camera video shoot every single week, uh, which goes into edit. Uh, For those of you that are looking for the videos of the past two weeks, I apologize that we do not have them yet. But it is all in the hands of the United States Post Office. Because when they tell you you you're sending something two-day priority, it turns out, in fact, you are not sending something two-day priority, even when you are paying for two-day priority. When you send something overnight, it is not overnight. Um, We are now in day 14 waiting for our editor Lydia to get the SD cards to edit the show from two weeks ago. So um, thank you, not United States Post Office. Um, Very, very disgruntled about this. I've already gone on a tirade once this morning. Have I not, Brian? And he nods his head like you're going to see him. Sorry. No. Yes. That that's that's it. But I guess we should tell people about our our very very special guest today. I am beyond thrilled, beyond thrilled to have all of these gentlemen with us live at eleven fifteen. Fabulous filmmaker, my dear friend, David Spaltro is calling in from. He's either live from New York or now live from New Jersey because I know he just moved. Um, into a beautiful apartment, I might add. Those old world apartments back east, fabulous. Um, David is with us to talk about his film. You may remember it is In the Dark. Uh, now has distribution. The distributor renamed the film to Dark Exorcism. We're going to talk to David about that one. But it is coming out in September. So that's very exciting especially considering how good the film is and what a great filmmaker David is. So David will be with us at 11.15 and 11.30. Calling in from Scotland, no less, we have Ken Petrie and Gabriel Robertson. Uh, Ken is the producer, Gabriel's writer-director of one of the most beautiful and special short films that I have seen in in many a year. It's called The Gift. It is about a birthday boy, a guitar, a choice, and Tupelo, Mississippi. 
And I will leave it at that for you to ponder until Ken and Gabriel are live with us at 1130. And of course, we will have some sound bites of exclusive interviews and more coming up. But it is Brian's time to shine here with his weekly Star Wars countdown. This deserves its own theme song, but I don't have any. And if we played the Star Wars theme song, then we would both be paying royalties. Which neither of us can afford. Nope. Nope. And uh, that's fine with me. Star Wars, episode eight. We'll have to ask Andrew if he can write something for us. Yes. Yeah. Either Andrew or we'll get the Nick and the boys from L.A. River yeah, to write. Since they, they are already writing a, pro, a song for me. Yes. And my love for Star and, Wars. And the Andrew that we're talking about is Andrew Elifer... Elefertides, uh, who wrote our theme music for Behind the Lens. Yeah, as well as our bumper to go to commercials our, and our commer- all of our music. To hurry you up. To hurry me up. The hurry up music, yes. Star Wars Episode Eight comes out in 500 days, 12 hours, 54 minutes, and as soon as I'm done with this, second, this uh, sentence, 19 seconds. But isn't that exciting that it's 500 days? Yeah, now it's 500. Yeah. I like that. Now, but Rogue One... <gasps> it's significantly less than that. It's 136 days, 12 hours, and 54 minutes to go until Rogue One. I got some interesting news here. I think you're going to appreciate this from Star Wars and Disneyland. Yes. Disneyland announced over the weekend, or about, yeah, over the weekend, had to be over the weekend, that they're opening up the railroad again, the train that rides around. Oh, very nice. Well, they're opening it up in, in uh, the summer. So. This summer? Yeah. No, next summer. Oh. So they haven't given a, a date on when they're going to open up Star Wars Land. But if they're going to open up the railroad in the summertime, they're not going to run the railroad through a construction site. So there's right. speculation that we might have Star Wars Land in the summer of 2017. Or a, or a visual portion thereof. So, or, yeah, wherever the train would be passing, right. it would have to be a completed area of Star Wars Land unless they're going to completely run the railroad around it, which I don't see that happening. But that's exciting. That means we do have a, a, a start time or an end time for the, the construction of Star Wars land at Disneyland sometime in the summer of 2017. That's sooner than I expected. I was thinking we were going to have Star Wars land in 500 days, closer to the release of Episode Eight. But seeing as they have released the information about the railroad, they're not going to that's the the, That's something to think about. It could be a tease for us. But, no, that's very exciting. Oh, yeah. I'm buying my pass again next year, for, specifically for that reason. Of course you are. The- so the railroad isn't running at all now, is no. it? No. There, uh, the, the, there's certain trains stationed at certain parts, like at New Orleans Square. There's a train station there, and then the train stationed at the entrance of Disneyland. They'll move it back and forth every once in a while, yeah. But for the most part, the train hasn't been running since 2015. And that's horrible. Oh, yeah. And it, it was such a useful way to get around the park. That is the only way I would go around the park. Now, you know, we have to walk around everywhere. And, you know, it's frustrating, too, that you can't go through, through Big Thunder Mountain over into, into the other sections of the park. That's all closed off also. It's for Star Wars land, but that's... that's you know, it's the, it's the price of progress. And sometimes it's a price I'm not willing to pay. I mean, if, we, <laughs> if we're going to stay in Star Wars... I mean, in Disneyland news, just real quick, they're, they're tearing down the Tower... Not tearing down, but they're changing the Tower of Terror over to Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, this disturbs me and concerns me that everything's becoming Marvel, Lucas. Where where is the Disney of Disney? Yeah, well, there's certain parts of it. As long as they don't touch the haunted mansion, I think I'm I'll be fine. Oh, oh okay. 
you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I could have a panic attack and get apoplexic right now over that whole thought. That cannot happen. No, no. And I'm sure they would. Or the tiki room. Do you leave those two alone? And we're good. We're, we're good. Well, I know they just reopened the music in uh, the outdoor music. Yeah, they're they're doing a concert series starting at the end of this week, actually. Which another another person like yourself who loves Disneyland beyond belief, Michael Hall, who owns and runs all the screening rooms for the press and and the studios in Beverly Hills. Um, Michael is passionate about Disneyland, and I know that was something he was very upset about because for him, that's great. After a hard day, 14 hours of work, you go to Disneyland, you just sit there and chill and listen to live music. Yeah. So that's reopening. So that's good. But we also had, we had other big, we had a big TV weekend yesterday. And I'm very, very, very thrilled that TNT has picked up the last ship for season four. So stay tuned for that because we're working out logistics to have Bren Foster, Wolf himself, do a live call in. And of course... Uh, we're going to get Al Kernel uh, on here live. In addition to excerpts of my exclusive with him we've already had, we're going to get Al on here live and uh, talk about what's happening on the last ship. So that's very exciting. And then for all of you Sharknado fans, this Brian did not see Sharknado. Sharknado is one of, it's one of the campiest, most fun TV movies you will ever, you will ever see. It is hilarious. And last night was Sharknado, The Fourth Awakens. And it did awaken. We had Cownados, Firenados, Shark Nuknados. It was just a, a campy film lover's delight with every reference to, from references, visual and dialogue to The Wizard of Oz, to Twister, to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was fabulous. Fabulous. So... Anybody watching te- anybody watching television, sci-fi channel, they're going to be doing encore presentations all week. If you haven't seen it, see it. You will just laugh yourself silly. But let's get to the business of hand uh, and today's Behind the Lens. So what do you think? Should we start with, since we're doing teases leading up to Pete's Dragon next week, which opens on the 12th. And for those of you of my generation and maybe even younger generations who have seen the original Pete's Dragon with a green and pink Pete, animated Pete, Helen Reddy, Mickey Rooney, um, that's not what you're going to get with this new live action Pete's Dragon. What you are going to get is Bryce Dallas Howard and Robert Redford. So I had a chance the other week to talk with Robert Redford uh, during a roundtable, and we already heard one clip from him talking about the difference between a director hat and an actor hat and how that comes into play for him when he is on set and working on a film like Pete's Dragon with a first-time feature director and the collaboration. But at the heart of it all is this is something – you don't think of Robert Redford with family movies, children's movies. Um, he did do voicing. Uh, of a horse in the animated Charlotte's Web. That could be his big claim to uh, family film fame. So why? What led him to doing Pete's Dragon? I'm just so thrilled to see you in this film because now a whole generation of kids 
we'll get to know the magic of the storytelling of Robert Redford. Well, that's very true. You know, as well as the thematic, the thematics of this film. I'm curious as to what led you to a family film, other than voicing in Charlotte's Web. This, you're not, no, you're okay. not known for this. No, but that's we, why I did it. What was the appeal of this? Was it the environmental and the conservation subtext that was going on, or the idea of the magic of storytelling? The magic. That's what it was. When I was a kid, I grew up with that word being paramount. That word was huge as a child growing up, thanks. Because um, you were little, and the world was bigger than you were. So anytime you saw that word, it meant that there was touching something larger than your life. So you loved that idea. So the word magic was very paramount when I was a kid, and then you outgrow it. Pretty soon you're living a life where there's no magic anymore, and you kind of regret it. You say, gee, that's sad. We kind of lost that. So the idea that I could play a part in a project that really has to do with the, with the word magic, and you keep that alive, and, you know, we, as you get older, the world gets darker and things get more cynical around you, and you, you miss that. And so the idea of being in a project that could bring that back, I like that day. Also, I have grandkids, and I, I was raised by being told a story, mostly to calm me down at night. So. So I go to sleep. <laughs> but then it meant a lot to me that to be told a story. Like to me, there was nothing greater than once upon a time. If I've ever heard that once upon a time, I thought, ah. <laughs> and so that meant a lot to me as a kid. <clears throat> so I decided to do the same for my children, and now the grandchildren. So we sort of pass that down. That idea of storytelling, using the element of magic, is something that's passed on through my family. And there will be more in the coming weeks from Robert Redford and Bryce Dallas Howard. Uh, but I like teasing you with things like things like Robert Redford and, and Pete's Dragon because uh, Pete's Dragon holds a very special place in my heart, and having already seen the new version, uh, it has a place secure there as well. But talk about magic. Talk about magic and somebody dear to my heart. Hello, David Spaltro. Hello. How are you, my love? I am doing good, Debbie. So are we in New York or we in New Jersey? Where are we now? I am I am officially a New Jersey ite. I guess that's the the, the way to say it. Uh again. So Yeah, but you got a really great apartment. I do, I do, I do. It's been a really good transition to go like full circle. I'm from Jersey City originally, which is like right outside New York City and so to come back and like kinda stabilize and try and get some more stories down on paper to make yeah, well, I mean, you've been just—you've just been slacking here, boy. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I've been lazy. I haven't been doing much. But you know, now you know all that hard work, the, and all all the the pain and the journey and and the glory even has been well worth it because now, in the dark, is now officially dark exorcism and is being released. I know. Doesn't that just look so amazing on a resume? Well, it looks fabulous on a resume, but look, you know, I still am not happy with the title change. <laughs> I'll be, I mean, I, I, as I'll, I'm, I'll be completely honest. I wasn't super thrilled with the title, but I mean, I, I also, having been down this road and, and, and other uh, peers of mine and their distribution, uh, it could have been a lot worse, <laughs> and it has been a lot worse. So um, I'm, I am really just very excited to have it um, after the long last two years of putting it together and dealing with all kinds of 
things in people um, that people will have a chance to kind of, you know, we'll, we're out September 13th so people can get it on VOD. It's, it's a really nice platform release. So I'm just very happy that all, everyone else's work who did a great job on this film will be able to be seen. Well, now, is are, is it also going, it's a platform release and it's going to be on VOD. Is it d- doing DVD Blu-ray at the same time or is that coming after? Yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be DVD. So you'll probably be able to get us in Best Buy and Target and all those places will be through Amazon Prime. Um, and uh, caught me in a bunch of other stuff. I think um, who, uh, I think Hulu eventually, um, nice. uh, iTunes, Google Play, uh, Vudu. Uh, I mean, there's so many different platforms right now, but we're, we have a pretty decent. So there's no excuses. Anybody you want to see this film, you'll be able to find it. And it is so worth having seen it myself. Now, let me ask you, did the distributor, as so often happens, they demand a recut? Did you have to? No, you didn't have to do a no. re-edit or, or or change anything. Other no, I mean I I know that they you know um, as all distributors do once they take it over um, and I and I wasn't the the leading producer on this project so a lot of decisions were out of my hands. Um, they wanted to, you know to put their own spin on marketing it whether it's a recut of the trailer or the title or the poster. Um, but they've actually been I mean uh, breaking glass. They've been really great to me in the emails I've had with them. And they asked, you know, for some supplements. So we actually have some supplemental materials uh, mm-hmm. on this on this DVD release. So if you want to pick up the DVD, you'll get a bunch of interviews with the cast and crew from a uh, festival tour put together with some clips. Extras. People always love the extras. It's true. So now for those that have not followed the In the Dark, a.k.a. Dark Exorcism Journey, what what is what is this film? Because this was also your first real foray into the horror genre. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it was it was kind of an excuse to to try my hand at horror and just do something. Um, I had been approached by an investor uh, about he basically was a uh, he had a, a little chunk of money and he wanted to make a horror film, and so he didn't really have a script or any particular direction uh, that he wanted to go in. So it was a unique opportunity to. Um, you know, though he had to be involved throughout the project, which was its own uh, horror story, uh, he didn't really have, you know, um, as long as he approved the script, I could pretty much do what I wanted um, within within the realm of the budget and, and his approval. Um, so it was a unique opportunity of, like, I wasn't sure if I could do it, if I really wanted to do it, but it was, like, at a time where I really wanted to go back out there and just do something, and this was a chance to do something that, if it was about me just going out and trying to raise the money and put it together, I might never have tried a horror film. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I also wanted to try my hand at making a different kind of horror film, not, not your typical, you know, ex- part of the reason why I never did one is the scripts I got were very, very low, low grade and very exploitive and, and just nothing I was interested in putting my name on or, or working on. Um, so I was like, okay, can I give this guy what he wants? Can I respect the genre and do a horror film, but can I retain some sense of who I am in my, as a storyteller? Uh, and hopefully, uh, the final product through, through all the craziness, um, Still reflects that. Well, how did you come up with this story itself so that it's not typical cheesy camp? Um, I, I watched a lot of stuff. You know, I, I think I had almost kind of lost my respect for the genre, or at least I, maybe I didn't treat it as seriously as I did when I was a kid because of how much like exploitive, you know, because horror is really big right now, but it's kind of like people just throw together the same old tropes. Um, but I went back and watched stuff that I really remembered loving as a kid and, you know, Stephen King novels and John Carpenter and the X-Files and just things that like, I was like, okay, so horror, you know, and a lot of genre filmmaking, sci-fi and everything else, um, it has all these, you know, 
you know, special effects and all this, this goody stuff. But what it really, the stuff that really works for me and that I think works for most people is when there's a solid story and a good cast and they use the genre to heighten the story. They, they try to tell a story that's really about something else, the human condition, you know, something political like George Romero used to do with the zombie films. And then, you know, in order to tell that story better, they use the metaphor of monsters or demons or, you know, aliens or um, just things that like, uh, it's like the sugar, you know, in the medicine mm-hmm. that helps it go down. So I, I wanted to do something more like that, I think, with this project. Well, and by creating that, you have assembled an amazing cast. Grace Folsom, who you worked with before and who just blew me away with your last feature, Things I Don't Understand. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then you bring in Lynn Justinger. Uh, and of course, I don't know, some, some, some girl named Kayla Leisure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know where she came from. I so. don't know. And, yeah. and of course, you know, my pick of the whole film, Fiona Harrigan. Oh, Fiona. Fiona's, Fiona's, Fiona's a great find. Fiona's somebody who I met, um, in an acting class that I was teaching a workshop. And she actually took my class twice. And even from the first time that she read for me, I was like, wow, I really, I want to work with you. And I didn't have anything going on at the time. So when we wrote, when I wrote this script, um, I was very fortunate that I got a lot of the people I wanted, pretty much everybody in the film that I had wanted, but I kind of wrote uh, that role with her in mind. Um, and she was, I mean, she's been going to all the festivals and she's won a bunch of awards for it. And, you know, she's, she's definitely one of the ones that people say stand out. So well, I mean, yeah, she's great. As paranormal, paranormal specialist, Dr. Kern, I mean, she yeah. she's she is akin to the next Lynn Shay. What Lynn Shay yeah. is, I to, can see, yeah, very absolutely. much so. I've told you this before. You know, Fiona definitely is. She is the next Lynn Shay because yeah. you know I, as, as many films as Lynn does. Hey, for all you indie filmmakers, let me tell you: go if you can't afford Lynn or you can't get Lynn because she's working so much, go to Fiona. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure Fiona appreciates that price. That price degrade on her. She no, no. I mean, I mean, I would. I would recommend any filmmaker. Not only. Not only is she super talented as an actress, but like, especially when you're an indie filmmaker and you know you're dealing with other stuff and time and stuff. You really want good energy on set. And Fiona is one of those people. Like a lot of people, I'm very fortunate to work with. Um, who is just awesome to be around. She really wants to be involved in the project. She she gives her all. She doesn't complain. I mean, she had the most, um, no spoilers here, but, you know, with, with, with a lot of prosthetic effects throughout this film, she had probably some of the most arduous makeup effects uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a lot of, like, being stuck under it for, for many hours. Uh, and she was just fantastic. I mean, never complained, was raring to go, um, just awesome. That's, and that's something that, you know, I really love with this film is your the level of your production values because so often with horror films there are filmmakers out there they're so anxious to make a film and they think horror is so easy to do and you slap it together and you do it and in many cases that's exactly what it looks like you slapped it together with whatever you could find and yeah. you, you make a film yours has such high production values and i know a lot of that is due to your dp yeah. gus Sachs, who is amazing yeah, Gus Sachs, um, Andrew Hubbard, who was the gaffer with the lighting design, who all they they both teamed up on things I understand. I mean, we literally had you know peanuts to work with. I don't, I don't, I don't you know, I was I was told I was never allowed to say the budget, and I'm still not. But I'm just going to say that it, it rhymes with seventy five thousand uh, <laughs> dollars, and it may or may not have been shot in like twelve days. 
Um, but, uh, it, uh, you know, and, and, and I think one of the things outside of, you, you have really good actors, you have really good crew people that like care about their craft, you know, everyone's kind of doing it. You know, I make sure everyone gets paid, but everyone's doing it for a song. Um, but it's, if you have people who know what they're doing, you know, it's, it's Pennywise town foolish. And I think that's the problem with a lot of indie films. They're like, well, we don't have the money. So we're not even going to try and instead be like, how do we use the money and maximize it the most? And one of the, the biggest hurdles on this was I was paired up with a, a pseudo producer who was like a human dumpster fire of, of independent filmmaking uh, when, it came, when it came to stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's just a, it's a very important lesson where no matter how little money you have, if you treat everybody with respect, if you try to find the right people and you guys are all on the same page doing something, then then you can rise above it. You can make you know, something that rhymes with $75,000 look like something that rhymes with a million dollars, you know? Um, and, and it's that, that's the kind of mentality you have to have to pull this stuff off. Could you have, and I already know the answer to this. If you did not have Gus, if you did not have your gaffer, if these were not people that you had already worked with before, could you, you could, could you have made this film and have it turn out as good as it did? No, I don't even think we would have gotten through day one. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll be completely honest, just going through the process of making this film, even with the great team that I was able to cobble together and, and, and even bringing people on in post, um, there were several times the ship almost, you know, tipped over. And I think, you know, no matter how hard you work, it's not, again, it's, it's not, it has nothing to do with even having a low budget. Low budget is there are people who can make miracles happen with nothing. And then there are people who can be given an unlimited, you know, blank check and, and choke on that. So that's not the issue. It's sometimes it's the issue is um, people not really knowing what they want, people not really caring about what they're doing or being honest about what their agenda is and making a film to begin with. Um, and, not, and also just not doing their homework and understanding what it takes to make a film, what it takes to finish a film, and what it takes to um, get a film out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think a lot of that... Uh, is what really almost, you know, again, even with a great team, almost almost blew this up several times. Um, but no, I mean, if I didn't have, if I was missing even one person that I, I really fought to get on this project, I think it would have, it wouldn't have even gotten out of a hole of, of production. <laughs> well, yeah, and you also paid attention to a very key element of horror films, paranormal films, sound design. Yeah. And I bring up sound only because next week in studio, I've got Formosa Group's Scott Hecker, Academy Award nominated. He just did the Batman versus Superman. He was supervising sound editor. Um, so I'm very excited that I'm going to have Scott here in studio awesome. next week to talk sound design yes. and editing. But that's something else with Dark Exorcism, that your sound, it's very crucial. It's very critical in some very, very key parts of the film. How how much time, how laborious was it to come up with the right sound design and edit? Um, you, uh, you know, this post was probably harder than, than the shooting uh, on anything I've ever done. Um, and, and that's another reason why I'm really glad that I, I did this kind of film um, and took a chance because it, it taught me as a filmmaker so much more about what you can do with sound and score to heighten the film, you know, because the other two films I've done, they had really good score and they had sound, yeah. you know, some sound design, but it was mainly dramatic, comedic, um, you know, chamber room stuff. Um, yeah, the ambient. The film, a horror film lives and dies on its sound design and its score. And um, 
I didn't know the film even worked really until we, you know, went into the final mix and everything was kind of putting together. It just made it a completely different film. Um, so it was very important to me to find, you know, um, Fritz Myers, who scored a bunch of indie stuff um, and, and is a fantastic musician. The score you know, is beautiful. Was, yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. He, I mean, he really, he was great to work with. He really understood, you know, we, you know, and I tried to give him as much freedom to as possible to kind of bring it up. Um, and, and Storm, uh, who's the sound designer, editor, mixer, uh, I've worked with him on everything I've done. Um, so we already had a great working relationship and he really, I think he had a lot of fun. I think we almost blew up his machine a couple of times trying to mix, uh, oh. voices with like every tool in the book. Um, but, um, boys, and yeah, their I mean, toys. it was so important. It was so important for the film. So now having survived this, <laughs> this journey <laughs> of in the dark to the dark exorcism, um, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker? What kind of guidance could you give to other filmmakers who embark on a journey like this and then go through, you know, all the way up through this distribution process and the sacrifices that you have to make in order to get your film out there? Um, I mean, I think, I think it's a lesson that, um, I had already, in a weird way, the, the lesson that I learned probably most of all is something that I kind of already knew. And if anything, it was just like double bolted reinforced is that whenever you take on a project or you have a project that you believe in and want to make, um, you know, really, really be honest with yourself about what it is you want to do. Really be honest with yourself about, you know, the reality of what you're doing, you know, and willing to sacrifice and, and just keep that, you know, in your mind's eye throughout the entire experience, because you'll be able to, I mean, no matter how good a situation, no matter how good a situation you thought you had, um, you're going to deal with all kinds of issues as a filmmaker, whatever the budget, whatever it's just, it's part, it's the, the price of admission as a good friend once told me. Um, so if you keep in mind what it is you're trying to do, what it is you really care about, um, no matter what happens, no matter who you have to deal with, no matter what you have to go through to finish, and hopefully you will stick through and finish, um, I think that's the kind of the carrot at the end of the stick that keeps you going. You know, for me, it was, I, I said I would do this thing. I knew I could do it. I knew that, you know, and I, I definitely had moments of quitting or throwing, you know, throwing in the towel on this several times. I'm sure we've had some private off-the-record chats about that. Um Mm-hmm. But uh, what really kept me involved was, again, I, I did. I brought people on that I personally loved working with and cared about, and I thought did enough work that to stop halfway, no matter no matter whose fault or, or problem was happening, I really wanted to push through and finish it. So again, I'm I'm just really happy that uh, it's it's coming out and people can see it and people can we can share the urban legends of the the creation and, and, and fight to get it out uh, forever. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, keep keep keep. Keep an honest dialogue with yourself about why you do what you do and whatever happens, hold on to that and make all your decisions from that, I think. Now, have you exorcised the <laughs> the experience of this yet? You know, some of the more unsavory aspects? Yeah. Yeah, I really did. I mean, I really... I because think I I, really... you put so much of your... This was... You put 150% of yourself into this film, and I know this. And yeah. I know how much of a toll... It, you know, it was taking on you. And I've seen this, you know, over my decades with on so many levels with so many filmmakers, but never to this degree, David. And I and I say that with all with all the love that I have for you, Um, what you put into this, I have never seen anyone endure. Oh, oh. 
that's an interesting honor I will have to have. You know, I'll tell you this. I think the hardest part, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of filmmakers that are listening that, that probably feel the same way, is that you would do all the hard work and all the sacrifice a thousand times over and more. What really, I think, cuts to the bone in, in, a, in a situation like what I went through or other people have had to go through is when you do that work, because filmmaking at, at its core is, is, is a drain, is a drag, um, but you love it. And when you're working with people who really, at the end of the day, don't love it and who don't appreciate the sacrifices in the work, I think, I think more, or, or that it, you're doing all this stuff and you're, you're taking, you know, you're sacrificing so much. And then there's people around you who are in, involved with it, with super quotation marks, um, that just aren't there and just do not care. You, you start to question, like, are you, you know, are you, are you crazy? Like, why, why are you doing this? And again, I think that's all the more reason why if you have people you care about involved in the project, if you have a concrete thing that you can hold on to, that's like, why am I doing this? Why did I agree to do this? I mean, this is it. Um, that kind of, I don't know if it insulates you from the, the heartache and the stress, but it definitely keeps you, um, it keeps you honest and it keeps you going um, as much as you can. Um, but yeah, no, I, I've, I've come a long way from, 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 you know, how exhausted mentally and physically and that I was. And I, I think I was really nervous to get back on set and get involved in anything. So I did some small short films over the last year and just kind of took some time to step away a bit, um, while finishing up the film and getting it out there. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm rejuvenated and, and back to, uh, to ready to go crazy again. Well, you better because I'm getting really bored waiting for another script to read. <laughs> I will have one soon. I think. I think now that I'm now that I'm now that I'm stabilized and I have a little office, I can go too. I, I will have something for you to peek real soon. Oh, good. Well, my friend, I can't thank you enough. I, did, I got inspired oh. yesterday when I said to you, "Hey, you want to come talk about the film?" Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so now everybody has a chance to pre-order it in time for September 13th. Yes, you can go to Amazon right now actually and pre-order it. So yes, I know. Do. I did. Oh. You always get my money. One way or the oh, other, yeah. you get my money. Uh, you're the best, Debbie. Yeah, I know. I know. Stop. <laughs> All right. And now I'm going to go from you to Ken Petrie and Gabriel Robertson calling from Scotland. Oh. I know. We're global. You're international. It's every week. Love it. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, David Smaltro. So I'll be in chat touch with you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that was the fabulous David Spaltro talking about Dark Exorcism. And now, I'm so excited about these two filmmakers, Ken Petrie and Gabriel Robertson. Are you guys there? Hi. Hi. Yeah, I, I think we're both here. <laughs> I hear yeah, you, but yeah. I hear you both. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Oh, what a lovely what a lovely audio connection we have. The phone companies are working well today. Yeah, well, uh, I I think a big shout out to Skype who are helping me uh-huh. get on the call. So uh, <laughs> yeah, all, all sounds good. Well, first of all, congratulations, guys, on distributing the gift. You know, and so people don't get confused. This is not the horror film, the gift, or any of the other gift films out that have come out in the past year. This is the most precious, poignant, beautiful short film I have seen in years. Thank you so much. But, oh, yeah. uh, Thanks for that. You know, and I'm so, so kind of you to say so. And I'm so glad, Ken, that you emailed me to let me know that the film was coming out, that you got distribution for it. Yeah, well, uh, I think, you know, we spoke uh, late last year and you 
you were such a fan of the film that we try and try and stay in touch with all those people that have supported us along the way and taken an interest. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to let let you know, like we're trying to let everybody else know that the the film's sort of getting out there and and you can kind of grab your own copy. So, yeah, it was great to great to let you know that we were thrilled that you know the film has got to this stage in its life. You know, it's it's kind of rare for a short film to find distribution, but I I guess you know, people really connected with the gift. So, so yeah. now without giving away, cause I didn't know how many, how much you wanted given away. So at the top of the show, you know, I just mentioned <laughs> a birthday boy, guitar, a choice and Tupelo and let people ruminate on that for a while. So why don't the two of you tell everybody what this film is about? <laughs> I, I think I need to let Ken do that because he, I remember, strict. <laughs> oh, strict oh kind of Gabriel, so chicken. I'm happy to ruin it, but he, he won't, so. <laughs> All right, Ken. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't mind letting the cat out of the bag. I think, um, I think Gabriel, it, it, I fell in love with the story when Gabriel told me it and his inspiration for telling this story. So I think that's a nice story that, that you know, Gabe, maybe you want to, let people know what the story is and how because we find our way to it. It is, I mean, the back, the background as to how this came to you, Gabriel, is beautiful. It, it's to, very to touching. What, what I told you the last time. It had to do with your grandmother. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I'm, I'm okay to ruin this or what? I'm yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, most people that know, that can put together Tupelo and a boy and a guitar and 11 years old are, are probably know the story already. Yeah, we've yeah, already ruined it. <laughs> no, but you know what's, what's surprising is so many people I know, when I was talking about the short last October, mm-hmm. um, was they had no idea. They do not know the whole the backstory of this man, of this person. So this, the, when they were s- people seeing the gift for the first time, they ha- truly had no idea, even really? with those clues. Wow, well, that's I think that's surprising me. But uh, and then they had no clue that it was actually true. Yeah, well, we, we've wow. we've had that a few times. People have asked us after the film, "Is that true?" And um, we thought that by saying it was a true story at the end, we'd sort of <laughs> we'd let them know it was. But apparently, <laughs> some people just Fargo ruined it for everyone. <laughs> um, but so, so the story basically was told to me by my grandmother, um, and she had told me about this this moment in this boy's life, and she was she, she was a huge fan of Elvis. And then when we set out to make this short film or a short film, I originally wanted to make something about John Lennon, but I just couldn't. I couldn't get far enough away from it, and it felt too subjective. And then I decided to sort of look into who was his hero, rather than make a film about my hero. Who, who was his hero? And we sort of let that mull about and then I sort of remembered this story that my grandma told me about Elvis and from there I pitched Ken the film and Ken loved it and then so forth see so I managed to ruin the film without telling what the film's about though that was particularly good in my behalf yeah well that's why you're a wordsmith 
in the direct <laughs> after all, isn't it? Because yeah. you can tell yeah. a story. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it was. Yeah, obviously, I fell in love with the with the simplicity yet kind of poignancy of the story, if you like, and and how influential it's been. Uh, you know, over time, because as, as as you know, Debbie, it's a, a period piece set in 1946. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's remarkable to see how much of an impact that this kind of true events had. And it was interesting for me because it was Gabriel finding his inspiration, uh, you know, as a as a filmmaker. So it was kind of there, there was a synergy there between this boy finding his inspiration and Gabriel finding his inspiration. So. Yeah, and you know, and lots of people have been working on that for a while. That, that. <laughs> sorry, I said Ken's been working on that particular sentence for a while. <laughs> I haven't actually; it's totally off. <laughs> I know. I'm just. Uh, but um, yeah, anyway, it's you know, lots of people were were very positive about us telling their story. You know, it's one of the things Tupelo is known for, and um, everybody got on side with these two Scottish guys who came over to tell a really local story uh so yeah it was it was a it was a great experience all around and and i think we've got a great product at, at the end of it and you know oh, well, you yeah do. we want to share that with people and so much of this there is a great authenticity you actually went to tupelo you shot in the actual store where elvis presley got his very first guitar you shot on a front porch that yeah, of the, of the house he was born in. The, yeah. Of the house he yeah. was born in. You spoke with his childhood friends. You you got the blessing of Priscilla Presley on this project. Yeah, she's seen the film, and uh, and the word on the street is she really likes it. She wants to help <laughs> us uh, get it wherever we can get it. So, you know, and yeah. then you create this beautiful, beautiful cinematic look and feel i mean gabriel what you and your cinematographer peter renaves did is just stunning you know i had mentioned that to both of you before um it is it has this beautiful visual texture your cutaways are not these you know it quick clipped you know you know go to black new scene opens you incorporate you've got the camera going up into the blue sky and then coming back down I like to call it the Robert Redford, the natural look mm-hmm. uh, of a yeah. film. But it is every element of this film is just so careful and so beautiful, so meticulously done. How did the two of you go about designing this entire um, tonal bandwidth of the film? Well, to, to be fair, it was all me. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, well, um, as as you know, Peter was a director of photography for Breaking Bad, which was one of my favourite shows, certainly contemporary shows. And um, he, a lot of the influence of the photography came from that and in, in the style, the setup. And uh, we we basically just sat down. I had a few key key shots. Um, that based upon just my my own inspirations and Pierre and I sat down with those in mind and sort of worked up almost like a jigsaw um, to fill in the blanks. Okay, how do we best tell this story? But it was always 
we we sort of always thought it was going to be a classic type of cinematography. It wasn't going to be your sort of MTV style cutting. It wasn't going to be too too overtly stylish. So mm-hmm. a, a lot of the style came from the, like the classicness of it, which was a deliberate choice because of the time period and because of a lot of the films that Peter and I were trying to evoke. You know, how, and, you know, right down to the clothing, to the cars, it is all period perfect. Now, I have to ask you, because you shot in Tupelo, could you, st- was it very readily available to find those vintage, the vintage look items that populate the film? Well, I'll, I'll let Ken answer about the cars, but in terms of the costume, that was the only thing that I was really hands-on determined to control myself, because... I knew how how important they'd be, considering it, the film's essentially a three-hander, mm-hmm. and um, it's set over such a short period of time. There's no reason why every ounce of detail on their clothing shouldn't be 100%. So I, that was sort of my own little private mission, and they were sourced from all around. Like Ken, Ken Affiliate, he was getting things sent into Mississippi from other states, and we were searching online on your eBay's, Craigslist, all that sort of stuff um, for bits of the clothing. But the cars, I'll let Ken tell you about because that was, that was actually way more interesting. Well, well I, I think it's important um, to say as well though, that we actually found a lot of those costumes in Tupelo. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we did have bits sent in, but uh, as Gabriel says, he was quite hands-on. And we found quite a lot of it locally, but also they were all based on a family photograph of Elvis, Gladys and Vernon from uh, from from about the time from about 1945 which on the DVD which we've just released there's actually some historical photo albums of like what the hardware store looked like at the time the picture that we based those costumes on um, and stuff so there's some really kind of interesting um, reference stuff on, on the disc as well anyway mm. but yeah the cars Wow, I mean, who'd have thought that there would be so many classic car collectors in like a 10-mile radius of Tupelo, Mississippi, (laughs) who all had beautiful mint-condition cars and were just more than happy for them to be in the film. Uh, I had nightmares of thinking about where these cars were going to come from and, you know, all the things you go through as a producer trying to add production value and, and depth to your production and in the end there were these guys Bobby Crouch and um, Scott Hendricks helped us and Jackie Blackburn and Joe Estes and these guys Mike Purst and his team at the at the automobile garage who just had these fabulous collections of cars and you know wanted to help out and you know I, I guess there was a bit of vanity that they wanted their beautiful cars to be you know, committed to film cinematic history, right? But, <laughs> but yeah, lots of very friendly people um, helping us out and really helping us just create an authentic location, you know? Well, so, because I was just, I was blown away by the number of period perfect and in mint, con- like you said, mint condition vehicles you mm. had in this film. It just, you left, you guys left no stone unturned. <sighs> for authenticity that immerses us in the period. 
you watch this and it feels like you are sitting right there on the bench outside of the, the hardware store, sitting on that front porch, watching Thank this you. watching this little boy. Um, and speaking of little boy, I, I got it. I have to mention Brady Permenter, who plays uh, our young, our little boy named Elvis. He is amazing, isn't he? Just he's just like everything about him and his family and the whole casting process and stuff was. I mean, like you couldn't wish for a more seamless process um you know obviously gabriel uh, like maybe gabriel wants to chat about casting him and stuff but you know i think from what he's gone on to do what he's done before and what he's gone on to do since you know he's a he's a series regular in um underground which i think he's mm-hmm. on wgn so I, he's yeah. you know like he, he's in big shows and what have you but um gabriel you you worked with him i guess really closely so yeah, um, and you have to tell the guitar story with Brady because I just uh, that it just melts my heart. <laughs> um, I I feel really blessed to have, to have got the opportunity to work with Brady at an age where he was clearly learning and taking everything in, and just watching him work with Xander and with Amy, both of them really went out of the way to make him feel comfortable. We we saw quite a few tapes um, in the lead up to casting it, and it was already difficult because we were casting transatlantically, mm-hmm. and we were getting tapes sent back to the UK. But his tape for me stood out like, with no disrespect to the others, like a I don't even know how without being hyper um, hyperbolic, but he. He was so good, and he played. There was a in the sides that I sent out. We didn't tell any of the actors that they were auditioning for Elvis. So, I basically wrote some sides to be read and taped um, with a few specific beats. One of which was I really wanted them to play it rebellious, mm-hmm. and a lot of the the, the tapes had the, the the actors playing it a little bit more childish and tempestuous, or playing it stroppy. But he played every beat rebellious, and for me, I sort of knew before I, before I met him that I wanted I wanted it to be him. And then when we met him, his wonderful mother Stephanie, it just sort of made it concrete. And and then yeah, like I, said, I felt blessed to work with him. He he's unique in that, unlike a lot of child actors who are looking for their marks and like what do you need me to do for the scene to be over mm. he was always questioning always full of wonder curiosity he was always going and seeking out Xander maybe running the lines maybe we could play it like this in the same with Amy so yeah he he was wonderful and like it's one of those things that you hope that you can work with someone again and he he's definitely one of them um, I'd love to work with Brady again obviously he's very, he's very age specific so, <laughs> and it's um when I'm making a film about Elvis in these late teens, I'll probably look him up. Oh my God. Um, well, and the thing, and the, you know, I mean, Brady and the Xander that we're talking about is Xander Berkeley, who has been around. He is an incredible veteran and he plays Forrest Bobo, Mr. Bobo, the hardware store owner. And, yeah. and to watch he and Brady together is just charming. It is enchanting. 
Yeah, and we uh, we were fortunate because of the sort of uh, experience hierarchy of the cast. Um, it sort of it, it felt really natural. So you had this young boy who was looking up to his mother, and then you had this mother who was looking up to the store owner um, for guidance in, in terms of how the, the film plays out. And that was very much what was happening on set. I mean, Amy is an experienced actress in her, in her own right, but she was even like turning to Xander and like sort of trying to benefit from his experience. And Xander was more than happy to let anyone, anyone and everyone experience um, his expertise in various ways. He, he was just, he was an absolute joy as well. And again, not to beat the same drum, but extremely fortunate to work with Xander and like proud to call him a friend now after that. I mean, it's um, you just knocked it out of the park on it. You lucked out with everything. It's as if, it's as if the project was charmed going into yeah. it. Yeah, we certainly yeah. felt a lot of uh, a lot of support and uh, and everything. You know, when we when we were over there, and you know, from from everybody in the UK, but also from uh, you know everybody in Tupelo that was helping out, right? Mm-hmm. But exactly. Well, you know, it's something that is important, obviously, to the film and to this young boy's career as it would pan out, is music. And you bookend the short with two very key pieces of music. You, oh, you've you got a little boy listening to the radio and Roy Rogers. I got to lock it in my pocket. <laughs> and then you end it with Elvis Presley singing That's All Right, Mama. How did you go about picking those two specific pieces of music? Um, to be honest, those were my sort of only choices. They were my first and only choices. I, <laughs> one thing I never do when I'm writing screenplays is put the music into the script. Um, and I sort of broke my own rule here. And it was sort of upon Ken's first reading of the draft, they were there. And it was a case of, can can we get them? And... Fortunately enough, Ken went away and managed to secure them. But the reason I chose them was really simple, actually. Elvis had such a huge um, affection for him that it felt right that not only would he be listening to it, but I wanted to bookend the the film with what the radio had at that time. Mm -hmm. So... Because that was play, playing at the start, you've got this is what the radio's like before Elvis. This is what he's listening to. And we made a conscious choice not to have any popular music throughout the film, right. other than Elvis learning to play the guitar. So that at the end, you're left with the opposite side of that story. This is the radio after Elvis. So, I mean, it, was, it seems simple in its conception it really really was and the reason we picked that's all right mama was twofold number one it was the first record recorded at sun so it felt really uh special in that regard and number two the film is as much about his relationship with his mother mm-hmm. as it is with boris bobo so it felt like a really great nod to that relationship so it's about, it unfortunately any... unfortunately everybody i had to deal with was very friendly as well. <laughs> it made the process of clearing those legals a, a little bit easier than it than it might have been. So uh, okay, now don't get yeah. used to this, guys. It is not everybody yeah. is not always this friendly. 
No, I, <laughs> I I know I've cleared a few things in the past which have been slightly harder work, but uh, yeah, everybody everybody I think liked the simplicity and the and the kind of importance of the story. Um, and one one thing that we didn't just cover there quickly was about that story with the guitar. I think. Um, yeah, like it was. Uh, Gabriel's one of these writer directors that's he's got a real truthfulness to him, mm-hmm. and I'm sure he won't mind me saying that. You know, it, it, there's a really a real kind of genuine honesty in in the stories he tries to tell, and I think when you see that scene with Brady um, strumming the guitar that leads into, you know, him becoming Elvis, if you like the Elvis mm-hmm. that we know. Um, there you go. I just ruined it for everybody. Um, but <laughs> he, you know, Brady didn't know how to play the guitar, and one of the things Gabriel wanted to do was show that evolution, I guess, or that kind of, you know, this is a kid who's literally just got his first guitar. So our composer um, skyped Gabriel the night before and taught Gabriel the chords and how to strum, you know, like a like the first three chords of That's All Right, Mama. Mm-hmm. And then on the day on set, Gabriel taught Brady, and he just strummed like a novice, but he was strumming the genuine first few chords of That's All Right, Mama, which like then segues us into the, uh, the track playing over the credits. So right. I think it's, you know, it's a really genuine, honest, kind of little nod to who the kid became yeah um but right at the beginning so hopefully i melted your heart again i'm not you quite sure that gabriel is but i get i get little goosebumps when you tell me that story i just got little goosebumps again yeah oh, yeah God. Well, uh, there was a there's a great um behind the scenes photo of me seconds before we roll on that last scene sean brady and when we when we first finished the film, that was one of the shots we couldn't show because it would ruin the film. But it was always it was always my favourite picture. Yeah, so, I was sending this press kit out to all these festivals who were going crazy for the film, and you just couldn't send them this beautiful behind the scenes picture because uh, you know you wanted to let them discover the film of their own right. accord. But um, yeah, but you know the cat's out the bag a little bit now. We've played it. So you know, now. How, how, where can everybody go to get this magical, magical piece of cinema? So you can go to uh, thegift-movie.com uh, and that there's all sorts of information there about how you can get your own copy of the, the film on DVD and Blu-ray um, and the festivals we've played at. And You know, the, the film's only 13 minutes long. I know. There's another... There's another almost two hours worth of behind-the-scenes stuff. So there's interviews with Gabriel and all the cast, Brady, Xander, Amy, um, interviews with Guy Harris. That was Elvis's Elvis's childhood childhood friend. Yeah, and, and, you know, he's like a custodian of the Elvis Presley Birthplace Museum in Tupelo. Um, So, again, he was so, so giving with his knowledge and his love for the project, if you like, and... Um, you know, when we showed him it, uh, when it was, when it was finished, I think it's fair to say he was moved by it. So, um, yeah, you know, I think there's all sorts of lovely stuff on that disc. Um, and yeah, we're just thrilled that it's getting out there, you know? So yeah, people can go to thegift-movie.com and 
find out a little bit more and, and maybe grab their copy if they if they think it's something they want to buy. So I well, think it's got lots yeah. of beautiful messages and, and lots of lovely content. So yeah, and I'd um, just like to say that just to make it really clear, that, uh, the film was made by a lot of people. Um, from the, our fantastic um, set designers and stuff, production designers, all the way up to, as you say, Peter Reniers. They, mm-hmm. um, everyone made that film what it was, and it's it's good to have Ken and I talking about it, but we couldn't have done it without everyone that was involved. So it's like sure. a massive shout-out to them. Well, unfortunately, guys, we're actually out of time here. This has been so lovely. I can't thank you enough for calling in today. Thanks so much for having us. No, we yeah, appreciate you're very welcome. Uh, oh. taking the time. You better and you better email me with what your next project is. We will, <laughs> we will. We're feverishly working away behind the scenes. I, w- I we'll want to let you know. You got to keep me in the loop, boys. You got to keep Absolutely. me in the loop. Oh, Ken Gabriel, thank you so so much. The gift dot film dot the gift hyphen film dot com. The gift hyphen movie dot com. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it written down in front of me. I'm trying to remember it. My brain is yeah. not functioning. TheGift-Movie.com. The All right. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Debbie. Thank Take care. Bye-bye. And we are out of time. We're actually over time, so Brian's going to chop something out from the opening of the show. Um, until next week, and again, next week, in person, we've got Supervising Sound Editor from Formosa, Formosa Scott Hecker, and... Theo Taplets will be calling in live. Until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.